0: Church podcast with Pastor David
1: Sinclair. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we just thank you for this time. Uh, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come and unpack your scriptures for us, that you would soften our hearts to the places uh, that they have gotten hardened, that you would uh, help us to see the condition of our own hearts, and that uh, you would awaken us to the beauty of the gospel again today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, well, welcome back to uh, part 20 of our series. Uh, I've never been a part of a series this long and uh, this fun. And when I say fun, I mean it's been impacting, too. We're in a year-long series looking at Jesus, the center of the Christian faith. Um, Our faith is built on this man who was also God. Uh, We're looking at his life, his ministry, his teachings, his parables, his miracles, and um, types of Christ in the Old Testament as well. And it's just been a great time. Pastor Bill and I have thoroughly enjoyed it, and we've heard some good feedback from you as well. And, of course, we've begun talking about the parables here after Easter. And these are small uh, stories with big meanings, Um, uh, short stories. Uh, earthly stories with heavenly meanings. And Jesus did this strategically to help people understand kingdom ideas in ways that were palatable, in ways that they could swallow it. Um, He talked about farming and and losing sheep and and different things like that, because that's what the people of his day were dealing with. And uh, today we come upon uh, my personal favorite parable, uh, the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, Now, this is also the most popular parable, I think, in my mind. Um, and it didn't really become my favorite uh, until about three years ago I read a book. Um, it's called The Prodigal God by Dr. Timothy Keller. And uh, this book will be in our library once we get it up and running. We're working towards that, and Cindy Vandepal is helping us with that. Um, but this book just changed my life. I, I did a study with a group of pastors here in town, and it changed my view of what the gospel really was. It changed my, my mindset of... of what it really means to be lost and what it really means to be saved. And, and I'm praying that this will speak to you as well today, that this won't be an old story. Um, because that's the danger of walking with God for a long time, is that uh, eventually these things just become old news to us. And uh, I pray that the gospel is always fresh news because we never have even come close to fully grasping it. And uh, this parable helps us get at it a little bit better today. Uh, so what I want to do is I want to read the parable Then I want to give you a little bit of historical background to help you understand the significance of it. Um, There's so much that we could say about it. We could be here a long time, but I'm going to try not to do that. Um, And then I just want to highlight three big things uh, from this parable. I want to talk about how Jesus is redefining sin in this parable. I want to look at how he's redefining lostness, and then I want to look at how he shows us what we all need, every last one of us uh, here in this parable. So let's dive in. Let's get right into work here by reading the parable. Now, I want to begin in Luke 15, verse 1, but the parable actually doesn't start until verse 11. But let's start in verse 1 because it's important that we understand who Jesus is talking to, who's gathered around Jesus here. So this is Luke chapter 15. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, by the way, there is a hardback black one in the back, and you are welcome to take that as your gift if you don't own a Bible. Um, But we'll be in Luke chapter 15 the whole day today. Uh, So here we go. Luke 15, verse 1. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Okay, then Jesus goes on to tell two other small parables. One about a lost sheep and one about a lost coin. And then we come to verse 11, the parable that we're in today. The parable of the lost son. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, "'Father, give me my share of the estate.' So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything." But when the son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Okay, let's give you a little background on this just reading it has impact on me. I don't know about you, but it's, it's just a beautiful parable. Um, so let's look at a little bit of the background. First of all, verse 1 of chapter 15, the people around Jesus. This is important for you to see because Jesus is going to be very strategic about what he says to them. We have, first of all, the tax collectors and the sinners. Now, tax collectors had their own category of sinfulness because they were hated so much. So they, they weren't lumped together with all the other sinners, it was tax collectors and sinners because these guys were professional legalized thefts. They would charge people too much money for taxes and then keep the rest for themselves. So They became very wealthy at people's expense, and everybody knew it, but they couldn't do anything about it. So they hated these guys. All right, so tax collectors and sinners are gathered around him, but also we see the Pharisees and the teachers of the law gathered around Jesus. And this is not the first time we see this. We saw this in John 3 and 4 with Nicodemus and then the Samaritan woman at the well, we're constantly seeing Jesus interact with these two polar opposite groups of people. What you might call the religious group of people and the rebellious group of people. Um, What you might call the outwardly righteous group of people and the unrighteous group of people. Um, The kind of people that, that, that find their life and their identity in moral conformity and obeying all the rules. And the kind of people that find their life by breaking all the rules and by just doing whatever I want to do. And, and don't tell me what to do, because I'm my own boss, and I can do my own thing. And I'm all about having fun. And so Jesus is interacting with both of these groups of people here uh, in this parable. And that's important for us to see here, because he's going to say something to both groups of people. Now, I don't know about you, um, but I've been both in my life, and maybe you have been too. Um, so whatever stage you're in right now, you need to listen with those ears, because Jesus has something to say to all of us. Now... on to the parable itself in verse 11. Now, Keller, I think, rightly um, says that this parable is often misnamed. It's called the parable of the prodigal son or the lost son. But he says it should be called the parable of the two lost sons. Because this is really two different acts in one parable. There's the the lost younger son, which is act one. And there's the lost older son. And so we're going to look at those two acts and really divide this up and see how this is a parable about two lost sons here. Now, verse 11, uh, Jesus continues with this parable right after his other two parables, which are similar, and we'll mention that in a bit here. But he says, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me, a share of my, give me the share of my estate. So he divided his property between them. Now, one of the things we have to realize here is that there's nothing that Jesus says about this father that would give any indication that he's anything but a good dad. Um, he's a great dad. And we see that over and over again in the story. And yet, he has a rebellious son. And this is important for Christian parents to realize that um, you may be doing everything right, and inevitably something in your parenting experience is going to go wrong. Um, it's, it's going to happen so, at some point. Sometime your kids will get hard hearts or thick heads, and they'll do something that makes you feel like, maybe I'm not doing a good job. This parable helps us to understand that it's not the fault of the father here. This is a son that, in his own will and volition, decides to go off on his own. And so you as parents need to be encouraged here. Just because your kids do something that embarrasses you, or or that humiliates you, or makes you feel like a failure, does not mean that you've been a bad parent. This father is a great father, and he has a rebellious son. Now, the, son, the, son, the younger son makes an, an unthinkable request here, and we tend to gloss over it. He says, Father, give me my share of the estate. Give me my share of the inheritance. This, in today's world, this would have been like the younger son going to his dad and saying, Dad, because you're not dead yet, it's kind of messing with my plans. I would really like to get on with my partying, um, and that requires me to have my share of the inheritance. But, see, I can't have that until you die, so I'm going to go ahead and ask for that up front. I'm going to ask you to liquidate your 401k. I'm going to ask you to cash out some of your mutual funds, maybe sell off some of your real estate. And I'm going to ask for my inheritance now while you're still alive. Something that no son or daughter should ever get until their parent passes away. But he's just bold and blatant and makes this unthinkable request to the father basically says, Dad, I wish you were dead, but since you're not, I'm going to go ahead and ask for what I want right now. And those of us who are parents can just feel that, like, how much would that shatter your heart to have your son basically discount everything you've ever done, just throw it out the window, and want you completely just for your stuff, just using the Father. It's an unthinkable request. Now, the Hebrew law... Um, made allowance for sons like this, rebellious sons, to be disciplined. Okay? Uh, this son could have been beaten or whipped. And even in Deuteronomy 21, it says that rebellious sons could be stoned to death for severe rebellion. So this is not the, you know, that, that, that phrase that some of you have heard um, from your parents, like, I brought you into this world, I can take you out. That's where it comes from, Deuteronomy. Uh, it, this was not the day and age where you were scared to spank your child in public. This was the day and age where the father is like, you know what, I'll get the, I'll get the, the, uh, the community together and we're going to throw stones at you, boy. You better sit down and shut up. And he could have easily done that. He could have taken out his wrath on this boy. But he doesn't. And that's another shocking thing to the people who are listening to this. Because they knew Hebrew law. They knew that this son could have gotten punished severely. But what does the father do? gives him what he asked. Now, in order for the father to divide his estate, he would have had to liquidate his assets because they didn't he couldn't just go write him a check or just go, you know, cash in some mutual funds. His wealth was in his land and it was still being utilized to make a living for him. His wealth was in his livestock, so he certainly had to go and sell off some of his land so that would decrease his the amount of of money and, and assets that he had to live on, but he also had to sell off some of his livestock. And he probably did this quickly, which cost him greatly. Because anytime you sell something quickly, you don't get what it's worth. So this father does the unthinkable and sells half of his livelihood while he's still alive and gives the money to his son. And then we see what happens. Not long after that, The younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. Packed up, went to Vegas, partied it away. Just spent a couple months, you know, in, in, in just nothing but wild partying. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Now, some of you have been in this place before. Um, and we call this hitting rock bottom, right? Where uh, you decided that you know best for your life, that you know how to live life and, and live it to the fullest, and your path has, has taken you down such a path of destruction that you finally hit rock bottom. And I, don't, I can't think of a better illustration than when you look at a bunch of pigs and you say, hey guys, save some for me. I mean, that is rock bottom. This guy is at the bottom. And all of a sudden, verse 17 says, he comes to his senses. So he hits rock bottom and he comes to his senses. He's like, what am I doing? I'm eating pig food now. You know, this is is not good. He says, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. What's he doing here? We've all done it before. He's practicing his speech for dad. How many of you have done this? You did something wrong. You got caught smoking. Or you took the car out and you crashed it. Or something like that. And now you have to come back and face your dad, who specifically told you not to do this. I can remember one time I got caught. um, I didn't get caught necessarily, but I knew my dad knew. He showed up unannounced at one of my friends' houses. We were smoking cigars. And... uh, this is, this is when I didn't really know how to smoke cigars very well. But we did have enough common sense to take our shirts off and to go outside. And we were, we were uh, <laughs> that's all the common sense we had. Uh, and, and, the, and, and so my dad shows up unannounced because I had forgotten to do something. And, and my friends were like, dude, your dad's here. you're you're dead, man. Because we were, you know, maybe late middle school, early high school, you know, this was definitely, we could get kicked off the basketball team and all these different things. And we're sitting there smoking stogies. And my dad gets out and he rings the doorbell. And so I quick put my shirt on, but I just reeked like smoke. You know, because these are not good cigars, first of all. They're terrible cigars. And they, they just, such an after smell. And the whole way home was silence. But there was many thoughts running through my mind. I was preparing my speech. My I screwed up dad speech. And you just don't know exactly how to word things, you know? And so he's trying to, this son is trying to find the way to word it. You know, like, should I call him dad? No, that might be a bit too familiar. Um, Will there be a a group of people waiting to stone me? I don't know. I have to be prepared for that. You know, and he's just thinking through this. Maybe I should say master. You know, maybe that would be better than calling him father. I don't know. Um, And he's kind of working through this on his way back, and he's heading back home with this in mind. It so he went, got up and went to his father. Now, verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. Now, this shows us that the father has never given up on the son. He's been waiting. He's been looking. He's been watching. You can just see him in his fields working, looking over at the road. No, nope, no son. And he's just praying, Lord, please bring back my son. He's... He's so foolish. He doesn't know what he's doing. Please protect him, Lord. It's still not coming. And he's just watching day in and day out, praying for his boy, praying that God would bring him back. And then one day his prayer is answered. It comes true. He, he spots a little figure off in the distance. And it says he was filled with compassion for him and ran to him. He ran to his son. Now, we think, oh, that's probably what any father would do. This is a patriarchal society. Grown men did not run. They wore long robes. They were very distinguished. And they didn't run for anything. That, they would have to hike up their robes and do kind of a girly little thing. You know, if they were going to run after anything. So they just, they did not run for anything. But this father says, I don't care how, how silly this looks. I'm going to get my boy. Hikes up his robes and takes off running. Pretty cool picture here. So then he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. And of course... This reminds us dads that no matter how old your kids get, we should be affectionate with them. Um, Even when they're teenagers and they they say that they hate it, we should give them big bear hugs and kiss them and say, hey, I love you and I'm proud of you. I remember a a story about this that I'll never forget. A pastor in Colorado, he, he said the most impacting thing of his entire life was the fact that every time he came home, his dad would greet him, give him a big hug, kiss him on the head and say, Brady, I'm so proud of you. This man is in his 40s, and still to this day, every time he comes home, his dad grabs him, gives him a big hug, kisses him, and says, Brady, I'm so proud of you. He says, this, this single thing is the most impacting thing in my life. And his dad has taught him the Bible. Um, his dad taught him the faith, and, and uh, it's, it's forged his identity. Dads, we have, we have a power to do that, and this father knew it. He gives him his affection right away. Now, We have to notice, too, that the father comes, runs to him, kisses him, throws his arms around him, and the son has not apologized, the son has not repented, he's not said a thing. And the father has already forgiven him. Now, this reminds us, friends, of how it isn't even our repentance that gets God to forgive us, because then it's, you know, salvation by works, and repentance is the work. Um, God forgives you by grace through his son, Jesus Christ, up front, repentance is evidence that that grace has hit your heart and you turn to him it's beautiful you're forgiven up front son hasn't done a thing and the father's already forgiven him so the son is a bit confused i think at this point you know uh, he's expecting something bad probably Uh, expecting an angry father which would have been very logical to think and now he gets a running dad who's kissing him and i think he's just a bit startled like what do i do with this I didn't plan on this. So he, you know, he's a bit flustered, and then he immediately goes back into his speech that he'd already prepared. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father just totally interrupts him and says, yeah, whatever, I love you, son. But the father says to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on and Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. It's like he's giving him back his identity as son. He says, you know, put him back on the car insurance. Give him his room back. Get him a debit card again. You know, let's, let's just fully in, reinstate him. He's back on the bankroll, right? He's giving him everything back that he would have had as identity as a son. And then he says, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. You know, he's, he's saying, guys, get the caterers and a live band, by the way. Let's get a band out here and let's, let's celebrate. Let's eat some good food. Let's not get the cheap stuff. Get Chef Dominic out here. I want to celebrate. We're going to party. I want a good band. I want some live music. We're going to dance. It's going to be a great time. It's going to have a big old celebration. He says, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He's lost. He was lost and he is found. So they began to celebrate. This big party. That ends Act 1. Now we get to Act 2, the lost older son. It says, meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what was going on? Your brother's come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. Now, pay attention to this because these are, these are some important statements here. So the father went out and pleaded with him, but, but he answered his father, look, and when the older son says, look, that's very disrespectful as well. It's like, it's got the connotation of, look, you. He's just totally removing all of his respect from the father. He says, look, all these years have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. Which is a true statement. It's the other half of the inheritance. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. What's Jesus doing here with these two lost sons? First and foremost, he's redefining sin for us. Now, we're always tempted to view sin as that which we can see on the outside, aren't we? Um, and Jesus has a way of, of totally undoing this throughout the Gospels. You know, it's... it's um, it's not just adultery having sex outside of marriage. It's adultery when you lust after someone in your heart. And we all kinda, Everybody kind of bristles. It's like, well, that means all of us then. You know, it's, it's not just murder when you kill someone physically. It's murder when you hate someone in your heart. And Jesus is doing a similar thing here. He's saying sin is not just um, what you do that's wrong, but it's also doing the right things for all the wrong reasons. Sin is about what's going on inside your heart, just as much as it is what's going on outside. Now think about the sin of the two sons for a minute. The younger son's sin is blatant. It's bold. It's this power move. I'm going to use the father for his stuff, and everybody's going to know it. He's just coming out and doing. He's not hiding it from anyone. Okay. I'm using the father to get his stuff. That was his sin, and then he uses the stuff for more sin. Okay. Um, but this, the elders, elder, brother's son, or elder brother's sin is a bit different. It's a little more subtle and internal. And it only comes out when he gets really angry. But here's, here's the big idea, friends. Didn't they both want the same thing? And don't we see that when, when the elder brother talks to the father? What did the elder brother really want? He says, hey, this son of yours who squandered your wealth with prostitutes comes home, and you kill the fatted calf for him but I never even got a goat to celebrate with my friends. What's he so mad about? He's angry because he wanted a party with his friends. He just went about it in a different way. He thought being obedient to dad would be more advantageous to him. He thought, it's going to be to my benefit to be obedient to dad. I'm going to get further ahead of the younger son. He's being stupid. My plan's going to work out for me in the end whereas the younger son, he's going to blow all his stuff. It's not going to work out as good for me. But he gets really angry, and he, and he ends up blowing up and telling the father, really, I wasn't staying home because I loved you, Dad. I was staying home because I thought it would be better for me. I was staying home because I thought you would give me more stuff, because financially it would work out better for me in the end. He didn't love the father for the father either. Both sons were using the father to get to his stuff. We have to see that. Both sons, in the end, wanted the Father's stuff and not simply the love of the Father. So we have to ask ourselves a question here, especially those of us who have been you know, serving God for a, a number of years. And that is, why do I serve God? Why do I, why do I s- stay at home with the Father? Is it because I love Him? Or are you serving God to get His stuff? See, Christians can get into this trap really quickly. I love God, I serve God because, uh, or I obey God because then he will be good to me. He'll bless me. He won't allow anything bad to happen to me. Um, He will will bring good things into my life and never bring bad things into into my life. But you know you've got the heart of an elder brother if when your plan goes bad, you get angry with God. You know, that's when you, that you, 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 can, you can spot the heart of an elder brother so quickly when their life doesn't go as they planned it to. You know, when, when all of a sudden, God isn't behaving the way that you thought he should. And in this parable, the father's not behaving the way that the, the, the older son thought he should. He said, well, you shouldn't invite him back in. This is not how I had dreamed it up going. I thought I was going to look better in the end. I thought it was going to work out way better for me. The father would give me infinitely more stuff because I was good. I stayed home. So the sin of the older brother is really not so much different from the sin of the younger brother. They wanted the same thing. They just took two different paths of getting there. The younger son said, I want to party and have fun, so I'm just going to tell dad what I want to do. The older son said, I want to party and have fun, and I want to have stuff, so I'm going to be obedient. And that's going to be my quicker way to getting it. Or it might take longer, but in the end, I'm going to have more stuff. They both wanted the Father for the Father's stuff. Both used the Father for his stuff. Why do you serve God? Is it for him or is it for you? So Jesus is redefining sin here. He's saying it's something internal as well as something external. Secondly, he's redefining lostness for us. Uh, and this really struck me the first time I went through this and, and strikes me equally every time since then, but... The younger brother's lostness is very obvious to us. Um, nobody would argue with Jesus that the younger brother is lost. He's eating pig food, or about to. You know, he is real, he's, he's just really lost. And, and um, in our culture today, this would be uh, the people that are kind of putting it all over their lives. Uh, like you could just go to their Facebook page and understand that they're lost. You know, because they they're not hiding it. They put it all out there, and, and they don't mind that you see it. Um, these are the people that are, you know, strung out and in treatment centers, and, and, and these are the people that are waking up at a different address a few times a week, and they're just lost, and, and, and it's obvious. It's outward lostness. But we have to see that the older brother is lost here, too. The older brother's lostness is a bit more subtle. It's a prideful lostness. It's a, it's a self-righteous lostness. It's a lostness that comes not from his sin, but from his goodness, See, the the younger son, you've got to get this, the younger son is, is separated from the father because of his outward sin. And equally in our lives, when we sin outwardly, it separates us from God. But the older brother is separated from the father too. Notice he's outside the feast and the father has to go out and get him. But why does the older son say he doesn't want to come in? Why does he say that? He says that because I never disobeyed you. See what's, see what's separating the older son from the father? It's not his sin. It's his goodness. It's the fact that he kept all the rules. He doesn't need the father's grace. The younger son's in, in the great celebration feast of the father, enjoying it because he's received the father's grace, but the older son says, I've never disobeyed you. I don't need your grace. I don't need your forgiveness. I've never done anything wrong. And that's, that's a more dangerous kind of lostness. And Jesus is going right at the Pharisees here. He knows the Pharisees are listening. He's going right at them here. He's saying, you can be completely obedient, 100% obedient, and be completely lost. It's because you'll begin trusting in your obedience to save you instead of trusting in Jesus to save you. And that's the gospel, friends. We don't trust in our obedience. We don't trust in anything else to save us but Jesus Christ alone. Flannery O'Connor has a novel in which she describes a young man that has elder brother syndrome. And uh, she describes this this man as having a deep, black, wordless conviction in him that the best way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. The best way for him to avoid Jesus was to avoid sinning. And maybe that's some of you here today that you, you don't want to you don't want to need Jesus. You don't want to have to fall on his grace. And so you're simply going about your business being really good. And you'll hear some people say that when you ask them about why they, how they know they're saved. And they say, well, I'm a really good person. I'm a really good person. Friends, that's not the gospel. That's a moralism. The gospel says we're, none of us are good people. The gospel says that we all need Jesus Christ. And that's what he's getting at here. So we have to ask ourselves... what am I counting on to save me? Uh, I think it's absolutely chilling how this parable ends. At least for me it is as a believer. Um, Jesus ends this parable, do you realize he ends this with the elder brother outside of the feast? The younger brother is in, partying it up, having a good time, enjoying the feast of the Father. And every time Jesus talks about a feast, he's referring to the kingdom of God, the new heavens and the new earth when we'll take place in this great wedding feast of the Lamb, when Jesus returns for his bride, the church. So in this, in this parable, we see this really confusing thing. This, this very licentious, lawless person who's broken all the rules, has received the grace of the Father, and has come into the feast. But now we have this religious, righteous, upwardly, outwardly, spotless guy on the outside saying, I'm not coming in. And Jesus is looking at the Pharisees, and this is kind of an invitation, like, you guys coming in or not? Notice the father goes out to the the older son too. He loves the older son too. And he pleads with them. And just as Jesus would be pleading with us religious people trusting in our own works today, come on into the feast. But it's a cliffhanger. The parable ends with the older son outside the feast. We don't know what's going to happen. Do they come in or not? The only way they can come in is by grace through Jesus Christ. And he's getting at that here. So not only is Jesus redefining sin and lostness, he's also showing us all what we need. Every last one of us He's showing us what we need. Now, the two parables that come before this, the lost sheep and the lost coin, um, have something in common that the lost son does not have. In the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin, there's a specific pattern. The lost coin goes missing, someone goes and looks ardently for it as hard as they can they drop everything they, they they're doing and they look for the lost coin until they find it and then there's a celebration same with the lost sheep the, the sheep goes missing the shepherd leaves the 99 goes and looks for the one finds the sheep brings him back big celebration so we get to the parable of the lost son and we think okay the son goes missing someone's going to go looking the lost son will be found big celebration but what's missing here no one went looking Nobody went looking for the lost son. Whose responsibility was it to look for the lost son? Who was it? It was the older brother. It would have been his responsibility to bring his younger brother back. A lot of people say when they look at this parable that this is evidence that there's no atonement. In other words, there's no sacrifice for our sin. They're just forgiven and it's just wiped out and nobody really pays for that. But that's not true. And this parable illustrates that. If the younger son is going to be invited back into the family, it's going to be at great cost to the older brother. Because in order for the younger son to be reinstated into the family, he will be given a new inheritance. He'll be given a fresh start. And now all the inheritance belongs to the older brother. And the father says that. He says, everything I have is yours. So it would be up to the older son, the older brother, to invite him back in. And he doesn't want to. But none of us can judge him because I feel the same way. I don't want to invite him back in. He blew his chance. He had his inheritance. I want mine. Don't you find that in your own heart? He needed a true elder brother. This younger son needed a true elder brother to say, I'm going to stop at nothing to get my younger brother back. I'll do whatever it takes, I'll give up whatever I, have. I don't care about my inheritance. I want my brother back home with the father where he belongs. That's what this younger son needed, and that's what he didn't have. He needed a brother like this. There's a story of this uh, young man that went to fight in Vietnam, and he went missing. And the army notified his family back in the States and said, we've done everything we can to find him, but your, your son is missing. And fortunately for this son, he had an older brother that was not like the older brother in this parable. And the older brother immediately bought a plane ticket, went to Vietnam, and searched and searched. And this older brother searched so much that he became known on both sides of the battle as simply the brother. They respected his quest to find his younger brother. And they left him alone. They, they, they both talked about it. Both sides said, we're not going to fire at him. This guy's trying to find his older brother. And he searched and searched and searched. And this is the kind of older brother that this younger son in the parable needed. And this is the kind of older brother that's telling the story. It's the kind of older brother that we all need. See, there's three brothers in this parable, actually. There's the lost younger son. There's the lost older son. And then there's the brother that's telling the story, and that is Jesus Christ. And he's showing us all that what we really need is a true older brother. We really need him as our true older brother to go and get us and bring us back home to the Father. And he did that. He did that at great cost to himself. The Bible says that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. He left his father's home. He said, Father, they're lost. I'm going. At great cost to myself, though, I empty, though it emptied me of everything that I have, all my possessions, though it, though it cost all my riches, I'm going. I'm giving it all up so that they can come home, so that they can be brought back into the family of God. Jesus went. He didn't consider it too costly to bring us back to the Father, to bring us home where we belong. He was willing because he is our perfect older brother and he is what we are all needing desperately. Now, friends, if you are, if you're the younger son here today and you're rebelling and you're running, Jesus is calling to you. He's saying, come on home. Come on home. He's come for you. He's searched for you. He's looked for you. He's saying, come home where you belong. It's the place that your heart has always longed for. You'll never be satisfied in that stuff that you're running after anyway. He's saying the only place your heart will really be satisfied is home with Dad. He's done everything. He's paid the price so that you can be completely forgiven and restored. He's your good and perfect older brother. Come on home. Now, if you're an older son today, which most of us are, most church people fall into that category um, of older sons, elder brothers. And we can either be good elder brothers or bad elder brothers like the one in the parable. But if you're an older son today, Jesus is calling you to repent of your pride and self-righteousness and every attempt that you've ever made to save yourself. Christianity is not a self-salvation project where you clean yourself up and make yourself better for God. It's not an attempt to become more moral. It is admitting that I cannot do it. I cannot be righteous enough on my own. And I need Jesus Christ. It's a humbling thing. Christianity is one of the most humbling faiths. It is the most humbling faith, I believe. Because you can't do anything to get to God. God had to come to you and rescue you. He's calling you, as elder brothers, to total dependence on him for your salvation, which in turn frees you up to do the good that you do, not to try to earn the Father's love, not to try to get his stuff, but simply because you love the Father. Isn't that the amazing thing about grace? Grace makes it so our works can actually be good works. Because if you're doing your good stuff to earn the Father's love or you're doing your good stuff to, so that the Father will bless you and give you stuff, then those aren't good things at all. Those are selfish things. But if you're doing your good stuff because the Father loved you first and you just simply love him, then, then your good works can actually become good. Now, as a church, I think this, this parable is extremely significant for us. I think it's identity-forming for us um, because uh, of three things. Um, I, think, I think this, well, I think of, it's basically one thing. We just have to model our elder brother. That's what this parable is calling us to. Model your elder brother Jesus as a church. And that means, number one, we walk humbly with our God and love him for who he is, not for, who, not for what he can do for us, not for his stuff. Um, number two, that means that we go and get our younger brother. You notice we don't often preach about just, just uh, all those lost people need to just come in here to church. Friends, this is a believer's meeting. This is where we train you. This is where we empower you and equip you to go out into your spheres of influence and to be diligent and to be um, aggressive and to be um, relentless with the younger brothers. To call them, to text them, to say, hey, let's go sit down and have coffee. Hey, let me care about you. Hey, do you need help with this? Let me be in your life. Let me tell you something. As as an older brother, sometimes we get sick and tired of chasing down the younger brothers. But we have to remember that we too were younger brothers and that Jesus chased us down. And that should motivate us. That should continue. us. Don't ever give up because he didn't give up on you. So you keep texting, you keep calling, you keep staying in their life, loving them, inviting them, speaking truth to them. Just being faithful as a good older brother, you go and get the younger brothers. You don't say, sit back and say, well, why don't they come in here? Why don't they get their act together? Why don't they just wake up, come to their senses? Sometimes that happens, and someone comes to their senses, they walk into church, and we praise God for that. But more often than not, they need an elder brother to go get them. They need somebody to walk with them. And as Life Church, we say, we're going to be good elder brothers. We're going to go get the younger brothers. And then third and finally, and my favorite, we get to celebrate when they come home. I think one of the saddest parts of this whole parable is that the elder brother misses out on some great food, a great party, and a lot of fun and joy of the father. Because he's so bitter and so angry that that the younger son got let off from his sins. And, and this happens in our lives. We can become angry that someone um, got let off from all that they did because we lose sight of what Christ did for us. You know, we never want to let ourselves get over what Jesus Christ did for us because then when someone comes home, when a younger brother comes home, we got nothing but joy and celebration in our hearts. And I, for one, cannot wait to begin celebrating with you when our younger brothers come home. Amen.
0: Let's, uh, let's let God speak to our hearts. You know, I uh, I was troubled by many post uh, Facebook posts this week. People saying things about the young man who bombed the marathon in Boston. His older brother is dead. He's wounded deeply. When Christian people were posting things like, I hope he gets everything he deserves and more. And I so much wanted to post and say, I'm so glad you and I did not get what we deserved. (laughs) Because what we deserved was death and hell. And I think it's important for us to understand that this amazing gift of God is shed abroad for the whole world. For whosoever. The question today for you is, which one are you? Which type of son are you? And what do you need to do in response to God today, the Father, in order to get it right? Let's pray. I'm going to pray for you and then the prayer team will be up front and they will be able to pray for you individually as you come So whichever side of the fence you find yourself identifying with, you can come and the Father will meet you here. God, we come to you realizing very much that we all fall short of the glory of God. There is not one of us that can make it in our own right in our own strength or in our own works. Would you convict us in our hearts individually here, God, and as a church? Father, we ask you to help us. Help us to realize that we need you. Forgive us when we've tried to do it our own way. Forgive us when we've tried to do all these good things so that we didn't have to have Jesus. And forgive us when we've done all those things that demonstrated that we really do need Jesus. And regardless of where we are, help us to come. Help us to determine in our hearts that we will come to you and that we long to be with you and we long for your embrace. We long for your identity. We long for you to put that that coat upon us, that ring upon our finger. We long to be in that celebration with you. Help us. Help us, O God. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Holy Spirit, convict us and draw us. In Jesus' name. Amen.